Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. So, a lot of TV fans know Bob Odenkirk as Saul Goodman from Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. But comedy fans know him from another show, Mr. Show, the sketch comedy series that aired on HBO in the mid to late 90s. It's been reinvented recently on Netflix as With Bob and David. A lot of times, Bob Odenkirk performs the straight man to David Cross's goofball, but on a dime, Bob could turn that dynamic on its head. His rage boils over, and it's hilarious. Greg, damn it, get out of here! You suck and you're wasting my time! How do you think that this was a stool? People like to laugh at me being angry, which is... People ask me to write damn it into their books you know when they buy this book uh they say could you please write damn it (laughs) i don't think it has the power when i write it out as it does when i say it it's bullseye this week you'll hear my conversation with bob odenkirk We'll share some of Bob's best moments on Mr. Show and talk about why that sketch comedy series influenced a generation of new comedians. Odenkirk will also talk about why acting on Breaking Bad wasn't the big leap you'd expect. A lot of what I did on Mr. Show, things like prenatal pageants or whatever, those were, to me, whole characters. Yes, he said, prenatal pageants. Despite the success of his own TV show, Better Call Saul, he'll explain why he still doesn't feel like a celebrity. Yeah, I'm just a dad... And I just work, and I go to work, and I do my work at the work, and then I go home and uh, do as much as I can with my kids who are now teenagers and want me to leave them alone and not uh, attend anything that they do. Um, And that's it. And I watch American Pickers and go to bed. Plus, the historian, author, and DJ Ricky Vincent will tell you about why Parliament's mothership connection ended an era and then started a new one. It's historical, but it also just kind of blows your socks off. Lastly, I'll tell you about a song that makes me feel like a better world is possible. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Who is Bob Odenkirk? Well, to millions of fans of Breaking Bad and its spinoff show, Better Call Saul, he's sleazy lawyer Saul Goodman. But to comedy fans, Odenkirk is an icon. He wrote for Saturday Night Live, Get a Life, and the Ben Stiller Show early in his career. He acted in the Larry Sanders Show, and most importantly, he co-created Mr. Show with Bob and David. It was an HBO sketch comedy series that set the template for alternative comedy in the 20 years that have followed. I spoke to Bob Odenkirk in 2014 as he was getting ready to launch the first season of Better Call Saul. Here he is on Mr. Show playing a kidnapper making ransom demands. What the kidnapper doesn't know is the parents he's making demands of already have their kid back. What do you want? Did you go to the berry tree in Grant Park as I instructed? Yes. Did you find the package I left at the drop point? Uh, What do you mean? Did you find your son's toe? Uh, I found my son... He was behind the berry tree in Grant Park. Hello? Uh, you have your son? Yes, he's right here with us. Uh, hold on a second. Hold on. 
stupid God, you stupid God, go. Okay, okay, it's not that bad. It's not that bad. Damage control. Damage. God. Okay. We are now entering phase two. Phase two. Yes, phase two. Bring the kid back to the drop point. Leave him there. Return in one hour and you will get the toe. Okay? Hey, hang on one second. All right? One. Hang on. Son? Son? Hey, did the bad man cut off your toe? No, oh, Daddy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, he's not missing a toe. Yeah, yeah, I heard him. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's a good one. My brother Bill wrote that sketch. He cut off his own toe and put the kid under the tree. <laughs> Bob, welcome back to the show. It's it's really great to get to talk to you again. Thanks, man. I'm happy to be here. As you pointed out, it's the first time we've been uh, met in person because I've been on your show for other projects. And this is also the first time that you've been on the show since you've become uh, gone from a cult entertainment celebrity yes to a high level cult entertainment celebrity there you go. I'll take <laughs> something that. like that right I, I, <laughs> Does that seems you fair? know the only issue I have is the word celebrity I just I, I don't think if I'm a celebrity I'm a terrible celebrity I'm the worst because you most don't, boring are... non exciting non uh, delectable bland you know I'm just a dad <clears throat> and I just work, and I go to work, and I do my work at the work, and then I go home and uh, do as much as I can with my kids who are now teenagers and want me to leave them alone and not uh, attend anything that they do. Um, and that's it. And I watch American Pickers and go to bed. I also like to watch American Pickers. <laughs> I know. And I watch the Antiques Roadshow, which is like such an old man. I mean, that means... I also that, love to watch dude, the Antiques Roadshow. We're both... Not long for this world. <laughs> that is a sign of senility. So let's talk a little bit about the weird form of celebrity that you've come into after 20 years of being a different kind of celebrity. Yeah. Um, you really hadn't done that much acting work since the 90s. I mean, you know, go on a sitcom once in a while. But right. mostly you'd been writing and directing. Yes. Um, how did the part in Breaking Bad even come to you? Just phone call. Vince Gilligan, uh, I guess my agent called me and said they're going to offer you a role for a show called Breaking Bad. It was in its second season. Not many people had watched it. When you got offered the part, um, were you at all self-aware about the, when you, and you the watched dramatic... a couple of episodes? Yeah, were you self-aware about sure. going to yeah. work as an actor-actor? Yes, I was. But I've, I, you know, look. A lot of what I did on Mr. Show, things like prenatal pageants or whatever, those were, to me, whole characters. I mean, I, I played them. I didn't wink at the camera. There was no live audience there. Shot on single camera. Uh, so film style. Um, you know, I, I think my commitment in those parts was just as much as any dramatic actor's commitment needs to be. So I... I wasn't super intimidated. I did think about it, and I did think about modulating myself and trying to get into the, you know, the universe where these other actors already were. 
And that's going to happen no matter what. If somebody's already established a tone, you want to try to be a part of that. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. We're hearing my conversation with comedian and actor Bob Odenkirk. I spoke to him before the launch of his Breaking Bad spinoff, Better Call Saul. The AMC show recently returned for its second season. It's funny to me because you're such a sincere and low-key guy, at least in the limited interactions that I've had with you being on this show. Um, and that that kind of classic Hollywood insincerity is something that you bring to life so yeah. well, maybe just because you're sensitive to it. I don't know. I mean, I think that, uh, I don't know. There's a thing, I, I, when I was doing sketch comedy for years and years, and I was on stage, I remember being on stage with Chris Farley at Second City and thinking, what am I doing here? I should be doing a, a dramatic or a straight play because if I'm watching this show, I'm watching that really funny guy that I'm looking at while I'm standing on stage here. And and I've always had some aspect of that. David Cross, I think, is, you know, a super fun person to watch. Um, I mean, I love writing sketch comedy, and it's what I, I grew up with and grew up loving and felt connected to. Um, so it's what I did. But I, even as early as doing Second City, I was thinking, you know, my, my place as a performer uh, is probably in uh, more dramatic stuff where I can bring more texture to the moment and then that's valued as opposed to sketch comedy where it's kind of more fun to have a simple energy and kind of really understand that person's uh, – you really feel like you completely know where they're coming from and not there's no like subterfuge going on. So, you know, I even thought it back then. Uh, but the fact that I got a chance to do it, the fact that Vince Gilligan saw that in me, I mean, that's crazy. He's And I don't know where he gets that power, but it's a bit of a superpower, really. I actually have uh, a little bit of you on stage at the Second City with Chris Farley. Wow. Um, that's amazing. Yeah, this is the two of you in a sketch that you wrote, as I understand it, and yeah. later became a big deal on Saturday Night Live. Mm-hmm. Um, and folks will probably recognize it from Saturday Night Live, but in this case, you play the father here, and um, uh, Chris Farley plays his I- iconic, now iconic character uh, of Matt Foley, motivational speaker. So let's take a listen. So I was talking to Kathy, and she came up with an idea that I think can set you on the right track. A motivational speaker. Yeah, one of these guys who speaks to big groups at high schools and churches. You mean to come here to the house? Uh-huh. Yeah, set me back a few bucks. Okay. Yeah, right. I'm stay hey, come on, you guys, hold on. I'll bump you up to gold cards. <laughs> okay, his name is Matt Foley, and he's been down in the basement drinking coffee for about the last four hours. <laughs> he should be all ready to go. And uh, I'll just tell him, hey, Matt, we're ready for you. His speech is called Go For It. Make him feel like there's a crowd. Matt! Matt out, buddy! Come on! <laughs> told you my name is Matt Foley and I am a motivational speaker. (laughs) Let's get better acquainted by letting me give you a little bit of a scenario on what my life is all about. First off, I am 35 years old. I am divorced. 
and I live in a van down by the river. Man, oh man. I'll tell you, my daughter asked me when she was about eight, Dad, what is the most fun you ever had doing what you do? And I said, it took no time at all to go doing that sketch eight times a week on stage at Second City with Chris. You know, he would get right in your face until you laughed. And he would stay there and do every move he had and cook up a different one every night. His job was to crack up the other performers, and it was unbelievable power. Just the greatest thing ever. It's funny because that that role that you put yourself in there, mm-hmm. um, it's been in some way or another 40 or 50% of your characters on Mr. Show. It's this, even then you're probably in your 20s then, right? Well, uh, yeah, I would have been 27 or so. And it's this exasperated dad. Yeah. And, right. I, and right. you know, on Mr. Show, the, the sketches where you're not literally a dad, you often function as <laughs> David Cross's dad. No, you're right. I never even thought about that. I, I'm the dad in um, No no Adults Allowed. Uh, and then the, in the story of Everest, in many scenes I play that, that role. Have you really never thought about the extent no, I to never, which you I are... never had it specifically pointed out that it was the dad role. In fact, I would say when I think about the whole straight man, funny man uh, formula, I think about me and David, and I've always thought, well, we're fairly close. Like, uh, I do a lot of super silly stuff. Um, but I think that's now that you point out the dad side of things— I probably am. It's probably more like uh, seventy thirty with me seventy percent voice of status and you know condemnation. I want to play another Mister Show sketch. This is a one of the relatively few recurring characters on Mister Show. Um, this guy named Droopy. Oh yeah, and Droopy has occupied a variety of jobs <clears throat> on the show and a variety of life roles. Um, there and, aren't many characters we recurred on Mr. Show because Monty Python was our template, and they didn't. Uh, they they had the Gumbies appear in one episode multiple times, but may, maybe in one other episode. They didn't repeat characters. We thought that was cool, and we wanted to do that. But sometimes you can't help yourself. You feel like we got to see that guy again. Let, let's take a listen. So he's terrible at every job that he does and at most interpersonal Interactions, and so in this one, he's he's working at the info desk of a museum. Oh yeah. <laughs> museum of history. Can I help you? No, you can't bring a class of students down here. This is a museum, not a babysitting place. <laughs> New exhibits. Okay, well, we've got some pens and pencils and. Uh, Telephone and uh, information sign and a television set. <laughs> he hangs up. <laughs> or he just hangs up on the person. Oh my God. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. We're hearing my conversation with comedian, actor, writer, and director Bob Odenkirk. His AMC show, Better Call Saul, just returned for its second season. I think as someone who was uh, 
uh, like a teenager when Mr. Show was on TV, I certainly saw that as a satire of Generation X. Did you see it that way? That character yeah. is a friend of mine <laughs> that I grew up with, and I was doing an impersonation of him. Uh, I wouldn't label Generation X with that guy. That guy is just a, a antisocial uh, guy who is judging everybody all the time and, and is crazy lazy. Um, we did make fun of hipsters, though. What were they called at the time? Hipsters? There was a different name for them. Slackers. slackers. Yeah. No slackers allowed. And there was this documentary we did about slackers not being allowed in certain places. Well, it's funny because, you know, Mr. Show was uh, kind of iconic in that culture. You know, it was a really big well, deal at the time. I mean, in in a very small circle. I mean, the show did not do well. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that is... Let's yeah. I mean, I'm so aware of that, and and I, I've never forgotten. <laughs> no, I mean, I'm so uh, knocked out that it's been influential to people. I think the people who care about comedy watched it and watched it closely and appreciated what we did, <clears throat> and so it inspired a lot of people. But we did not get good ratings, and we didn't make much of a dent, uh, except maybe amongst. Uh, you know, people who went into it as a profession, which counts for something. I think that in contrast to the reputation of Generation X and Generation X culture, that one of the things that's really distinctive about Mr. Show is there is a really apparent sense of craft in the show. And I feel like that came in significant part from your personal commitment to craft to making really strong specific choices and decisions about what was happening. Yeah, and also show. I will say that look, I'm super proud of how hard we worked and and we really uh held uh our standards as high as we possibly could every day. We really sweated it and tried to make it great. And we did have fun, but I I think I probably sweated it too much. But the thing I most valued that we did were really good sketches that kind of are not not parody and aren't commenting on the pop culture of any kind. So things like The Audition, which I did not write, or Pre-Tape Call-In Show, which I did not write, or Shampoo, or uh, Lie Detector, or, you know, these are sketches that are kind of solid sketches. They're almost vaudeville sketches that still are just as funny now as they were when we did them. Those are the hardest things to write because they don't have – you don't get an automatic response from the audience off just the the cultural touchstone where you're parodying something or you're being uh, – overplaying or blowing up some characterization that we've seen in the world and everyone laughs because everyone's got that on their mind. It's the zeitgeist thing. Those things are, are – you have to understand the rules of the world that we created, of the of the character's personal quirk or whatever – and then the joke just starts to build itself out. Um, I, I love Hunger Strike. Uh, really, I think one of the greatest things we did. So those are the things I'm most proud of. And they were the hardest to write, too. I mean, those that to me, when we had seven or eight of those per season, I was like, that's great stuff. 
We'll hear the rest of my conversation with Bob Odenkirk after a break. He'll talk about the movies he's made and, surprisingly, what he wishes he'd done differently. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Smith. Save time and money on your home improvement, remodeling, and repairs. Smith works to get you quotes from top-rated contractors in 24 hours. Contractors bid to complete your projects, everything from kitchen and bathroom remodeling to painting, plumbing, landscaping, cleaning, and much more. Get free quotes today by texting the word NPR to Smith. Message and data rates may apply. If you like Bullseye, and if you're looking for more to listen to, check out NPR One. The suggestions in NPR One are hand-curated to help you find the best from public radio where you live and beyond. News and podcasts, NPR One is ready when you are. NPR O-N-E is on your app store. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. We're hearing my 2014 conversation with the comedian, writer, director, and actor Bob Odenkirk. His AMC show, Better Call Saul, just returned for its second season. Let's hear another sketch from Odenkirk's cult sketch comedy series, Mr. Show with Bob and David. This is the pre-taped call-in show. Good evening and welcome to the pre-taped call-in show where we tape all our shows a week in advance. I'm your host, Ken Doral, and uh, let's try it again. It's really not that hard, okay? Our topic, once again, is the elderly. Okay. We're, we're taping it now, and it airs next week, okay? So if you're watching me talk about the elderly, don't call to talk about it. It's too late. Instead, call about cooking, which is next week's topic, okay? If you wanted to talk about the elderly, you should have called last week when our pet care show was airing, but we were taping... The Elderly Show. Does, these are all sketches where the joke comes from a, just a really skillful application of a premise. The, you have these premises in, this, in these <clears throat> sketches that are spun out in not just big, you know, outlandish ways, but really surprising, specific yeah. ways. When you get the audience to sort of tune in to this little twist you made, and they're so sensitive to it that they're laughing at every turn, every way which you twist it another way. They, they can sense it. They can, they're right there with it. Okay, so here we go. Hello. Hi, Ken. Great show. Thank you. Uh, what can I do for you? Uh, my dog has a disobedient problem. Okay, and, uh... okay. There, there you go. <laughs> okay, that's... Uh, that's boo-boo number one. Hopefully, that'll be our last. Okay, uh, look, if you wanted to talk about pet care, you should have called two weeks ago when our show on racism was airing. Okay, I'm doing a show about the elderly right now, which, of course, to you people watching means calling about cooking. Okay, well... Those, yeah, the well-crafted scenes. I'm really proud of it. We did a lot of rewriting. We would, uh, David and I would shoot... We would write some sketches for two weeks. Then we'd call in our writers. They'd come in, see what we'd already written. Then everybody would start shooting ideas around, go off and write, come back throughout a day. We'd, we'd have uh, two or even sometimes three sessions where we worked as a group and then split up. And, and we'd pitch on each other's jokes. So that's a great sketch. What if you did this with it? And take notes. And 
and it was really a way of helping each other, getting perspective on what you were writing, finding the best possible joke to make out of your premise, and and then building that thing out. Hello. Yeah, hi. Uh, what's going on? I mean, you're doing a show about pet care, but everybody's talking about racism. No, I don't... no, okay, no, no, no. No, I'm not doing a show about pet care. I'm doing a show about the elderly. The people calling about racism are watching the show that aired when we were taping the pet show, which is airing now, okay? If they wanted to talk about racism, they should have called three weeks ago when our Crime in the Street show aired, okay? It's just, let's think before we... In contrast to, I mean, I think probably the the most broadly known sketch comedy show on TV is Saturday Night Live. It's been on for a really long time. Well, it's Mad been... TV went away, but otherwise right. it would have been Mad TV. Right. So number one, Mad TV. Number two, Saturday Night Live. Probably number three, your show of shows. And, you know, Saturday Night Live, I think partly by virtue of the way that it's put together, which is to say that it's written almost always the week that it's performed, is a show that's driven by two things. One is timeliness. So frequently stuff on Saturday Night Live is just something that we know about. And it's like here, here it is presented back to you in a funhouse mirror type way. And the other is performers. The show's had so many brilliant, amazing performers who bring their characters to the show. And so you think of Saturday Night Live, you think of Wayne and Garth, you think of, or, you know, I think of Wayne and Garth because of, you know, you think of Stefan, you think of all of these amazing performances um, that are just sort of, that just sort of light up the stage. You think of Chris Farley. Yeah. Um, And Mr. Show is a show that was um, about the sketches in yeah. a way that almost no other sketch comedy show is. And that all, this, all the performances are superb, but they don't... The sketches almost never hinge on an incandescent performance. No, I know what you mean. And in that way, it's more like Monty Python. I mean, Python had Cleese, who was a very seasoned performer. And I think Eric Idle, at times, really ran with the sketch, you know, and... And the performance was more than half the value of it. Um, but the other guys uh, did great, great work and were there to play the sketch as humorously and, and sort of truthfully as they could, you know. And and they're great performers and actors and all, and they've proven it in other projects as well. But I think you're right. I think there was le- – Mr. Show was not about the performance first, it was about the sketch and how to do it best and how to make the most of that joke for that sketch. And I guess I come from writing probably. Uh, I mean, I've always loved performing, but I I would sit down and write every day since I was a kid. And so I probably care more about doing that and trying to win with that. You know, have the, have the structure and the, the joke and the execution be the star. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. We're hearing my interview with the comedy writer, director, and actor Bob Odenkirk. His AMC show, Better Call Saul, recently returned for its second season. I spoke with him in 2014. You have a new book of humor writing called A Load of Hooey. Yes. You want to read a little bit from your book? Yeah. This is called The Phil Spector I Knew. In a decade of friendship, Phil Spector, Mr. Wall of Sound, has gone from being an acquaintance to a friend to, finally... My BFF of all time. 
Phil's a wonderful, talented, sweet man, and in a decade of laughs, life, and laughter, laughter and life, he has enriched my world with music, good conversation, and gunshots. Fifteen years ago, I was working at the Fat Burger on Santa Monica Boulevard, seating people, not an official position as they reminded me every five minutes, when his fillness came in with bodyguards at 3 a.m. to get a chili egg pizza burger. I immediately put some of his songs on the juke and won him over with my grins and head bops in his direction. He could tell I was a fan, and what's more, that I was unencumbered by employment or responsibility, and so he invited me back to his castle at Alta Loma. That first night was a party that has metaphorically continued to this day. It's Tuesday as I write this. Sir Phil took me home. There were a couple of nasty hookers whose names shall remain unremembered, and the party started specter-style when Phil playfully brandished a gun, playfully herded us into a listening room, and playfully wouldn't let us leave until we heard his Christmas album ten times in a row. Let me testify to his character. Phil has only shot me three times in ten years. (laughs) Granted, he has shot at me around 15 times. And granted, he has shot at the walls and ceiling near me approximately 37 times. But when you take into account how many times he has shot a gun off around me, or more importantly, how often he has merely brandished a gun in my presence, 125 times, then being (laughs) shot three times is not very much. Keep in mind, we were partying. This was a good time. Now, if you'll get off your high horse for a moment, I will let you in on something else. Of the three times that Phil has shot me, he has only killed me twice. And of the only two times he has killed me, he has only shot me in the face once. And sorry to step on your sick fantasies, he has never had sex with my corpse. (laughs) Bob Odenkirk reading from his new book, A Load of Hooey. So maybe it was the last time you were on the show, um, I, I... Maybe you've been on one since then, but you, but you were on in the late 2000s, um, mid to late 2000s. You had just released, I think, your third feature film as a director, uh-huh. Let's Go to Prison. Um, uh, it would be Brother Solomon were the, was the third. Okay. Maybe it was, yeah, maybe it was in between the two. I don't even, try Mel- to remember. Melvin Goes to Dinner. Melvin Goes to Dinner was the first, a prison. small independent yeah. film. Anyway, the moral of the yeah. story here is, Bob, timelines aside. Uh-huh. Um, I have rarely interviewed a creative person who sounded so disenchanted with, if not quite their work, then the, you know, the world in which they worked. I mean, you sounded genuinely kind of sad. This was after Brother Solomon. Okay. Yeah, I I felt like I'd not done a good job on those th- on all three of those films. I think Melvin is. Uh, well done and and um, is a great piece of writing and really well played by the actors and I, I thought my style of shooting it was good but I think there were things about it I, I probably should have uh, worked on and then Let's Go to Prison I love how that was shot and again played really really well by the actors and uh, and yet I, I let it down because I didn't work harder on a story and some of the pieces in it that I just didn't grasp. I, I didn't, they were, didn't work so well for me, and I really should have worked harder to make them work for me so I could have shot them appropriately. But I was disappointed. Yeah, you know, I really was disappointed in that I just didn't do my job on those projects. 
And your job is to bring all of your talents, all of your criticisms, all of your sweat to make it work for you and then go out and direct it. And don't later say, oh, it didn't work for me and I didn't understand it like I'm doing right now. You know, and I really think I I will direct again. I love directing, but I'm going to do it when I know, just like I did with Mr. Show, this, I know what I'm doing here. You know, I know what I'm shooting for. I've basically never heard anyone in show business uh, say about something that they did besides you just now that they didn't do as good of a job as they could have. Yeah, really? I think people feel that. I'm way. not saying people don't feel that. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, what should I say? <laughs> I, I feel that. I feel that's the truth. I mean, I could have, I, I didn't do, uh, that's that's the job. That's that job. And you, you, you know, so from here on out, I said, I'm not going to take that role unless I'm willing to put my name on it, a film by and that I'm going to stand by every choice, every piece of script, every word, and every costume and everything in it. And uh, if if I'm not going to do that, then I should just do my part in, in making other projects happen. I'm Jesse Thorne. This is Bullseye. We're hearing my conversation with Bob Odenkirk. His book is called A Load of Hooey, and his AMC show, Better Call Saul, just returned for its second season. I want to ask you about making other projects happen because it was around that time that you started working with Tim and Eric. Um, and if folks haven't seen their work, uh, they are, um, you know, absolutely sui generis. I mean, they're like uh, as Tim and Eric y as anything could ever be and not much like anything else. Yeah. They, uh, their comedy is a. Uh, sort of grotesque and a perfectly incorrect and um, uh, really amazing. Uh, they're so funny. And, you know, you you became the producer of their first Adult Swim show when you literally saw a DVD of, like... It was, like, five different pieces on it. Yeah, like, some, some bits that they had done... Yeah. Just as buddies around, I think it's Pittsburgh they're from. Well, one was like uh, Tom Goes to the Mayor. It was Tom Goes to the Mayor, but an even cruder version. And one was this thing called Friends, and it was just like a music video, and they're this super silly song, and they're just goofing around together. One was the Cat Film Festival, which I think is on YouTube. And one had this animated piece, very strange animation mixed with live action. And the thing is, I saw him, and... Even though they all they sort of didn't all make me laugh equally, they all belonged together. Even though they were very different visually, it was like one mind had come up with these five different films. And that's an that's an interesting thing that a sketch show needs to have, and it's a hard thing to achieve. One thing about them is that they are not Bob Odenkirk-ish. They are not. Right. And I remember. No, I know what you mean. I'm much more literal. I'm le- way less abstract than they are, and absurd. And they're not Mr. Showy, right. and they're not. And I think often when people, when people decide they've gotten to the point in their career where they would like to start 
you know, mentoring people that are younger than them and are, you know, in a place where they were 15 or 20 years earlier, they look for somebody that is like them, not somebody that is unlike them. Yeah, well, I mean, the thing that's been great about Tim and Eric is I've given them a lot of uh, advice or criticism of their work, and they always take the big note and do it their own way. They never do. I'll usually when you you know critique something, I think it's helpful to give an example of what you're looking for, what you think would fix it or make it better, and they never use. The example I give them, <laughs> they always do their own version that is completely out of their own brains. And uh, and so they're, I mean, they're amazing artists and talent. And when I first saw their work, I, I my dream was that they get to share that with a lot of people and not in some uh, museum somewhere. Because they really are you know, uh, almost to that level of like they could they could be in the Museum of Modern Art. You know what I mean? But I wanted I think that they're more likable than that. They're more fun than that. And so it's proven to be true. That's for sure. How do you feel about the prospect of being a television star? I think I'm too old to be a television star. Uh, I think I can be a television actor. Uh, but you're going to be the star of a television uh, program created by the most acclaimed television. Right. But what does that mean? What does it mean? I mean, I think what you're implying is that beyond doing the job and acting the part that's bigger than the other parts, <laughs> uh, that I have some uh, new dimension of my life where I'm a celebrity and I have to I have some duties as a celebrity, which is to hold still while people photograph me. Uh I just don't think I do. I just, I, I mean, I, the, I'm too old for to be uh, tricked into thinking uh, that one thing leads to the other. I, I, I think I, maybe I'll be proven wrong, but I think I get to be a TV actor and maybe even a movie actor at times and do the best work I can, and that I have no, utterly no responsibility to uh, stand still for a picture on the street or or be some persona outside of uh, working uh, in my profession. I just don't think I do. I'm, I'm, I think when you're younger, it's very easy to kind of believe that now you have this public persona and you have to play it. You have to look it. You have to be at the right places and stand the right way and, and get your hair cut by a certain person. And you have to you have a job now. The public has decided that you have this other job besides for the one you signed up for and want to do, which is acting maybe or whatever it is. You have this other job that that takes up your personal life. And I just don't think that's the case at all. I don't agree. And I don't. You know, so I'm going to be a terrible celebrity. <laughs> terrible. The paparazzi are just going to throw their cameras on the cement. Oh, forget it, they're going to say as they walk away. If you won't even do it, we're not going to do it. And I'm going to go, fine, whatever. Bob, thank you so much. Thank you, buddy. Bob Odenkirk's book is called A Load of Hooey. You can find season two of his show, Better Call Saul, Monday nights on AMC. Odenkirk will be the one who is playing the title role. 
but not starring in it. Thanks, everyone. After a break, the author Ricky Vincent will tell us why Parliament's Mothership Connection is a divine funk creation. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Thanks for listening to Bullseye. You know, every week, NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour brings you a fun and funny conversation about the best in movies, TV shows, books, music, and more. From Broadway's current phenomenon, Hamilton, to in-depth discussions with Trevor Noah and Shonda Rhimes, you're bound to hear something that makes you happy every week. That's Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. Find it now at npr.org slash podcasts and on the NPR One app. Carrie, close your eyes. Okay. In the future, when I utter the word canceled, everything which I have said to you while you are in a therapy session will have no force with you. Let's go to the earliest moment of pain or discomfort. Uh, No, Ross, I don't think I want to do Scientology auditing. I understand. The only way is through. I don't really like Scientology, Ross. That's too bad, because we have a show called Oh No, Ross and Carrie. If people are going to learn all about Scientology, I'm afraid you're going to have to go through the auditing process. Is it going to be just like this? Yep, for like five hours at a time. Why did we start making a show? We're masochists. Oh, okay. Cancelled. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. It's time, once again, for Cannonball. take classic albums or albums that should be considered classics and we find out what makes them great. This week we're joined by the DJ, author, historian, professor and self-described funketeer Ricky Vincent. He's going to take us on a trip through Parliament's 1975 album Mothership Connection. Ricky could have picked any funk album on the planet to talk about. There's a reason he chose this one. The Mothership Connection is where everything starts, everything ends, and everything starts again. This is one of the most important records in R&B, one of the most important records uh, in funk, and one of the most important records in hip-hop. A good evening. I do not attempt to adjust your rhythm. From about 1970 onward, artists like Stevie Wonder and the Isley Brothers and bands like Cool and the Gang and the Ohio Players uh, and, of course, Parliament Funkadelic started to really uh, grow and expand around this idea of great black music with a hard, funky edge on the bottom and yet all of the soul and spirituality of uh, the music that uh, preceded funk. And uh, the band that sort of moved everything forward was uh, George Clinton's Parliament. There's actually two bands, Parliament, Funkadelic, and in 1975, everything came together. First song is P-Funk Wants to Get Funked Up, which was a clarion call for who Parliament is and what they're about to do and what they're about to deliver to you, which is the P-Funk, uncut funk, the bomb, uh, brought to you by some uh, uh, specially designed aliens who are going to come to Earth and funk you up.
Okay, the next track is Mothership Connection, Star Child, the title song of the album, which uh, positions the philosophy of the P-Funk world and the extraterrestrial nature of the P-Funk experience. Citizens of the universe, recording angels, we have returned to claim the pyramid. The character uh, identifies himself as Star Child. A lot of uh, the background of Parliament was a, a doo-wop group where everyone harmonized together. You, you don't really get a sense that the lead singer is this man, George Clinton. Uh, here to explain what the funk is all about. You don't get George Clinton, you get Star Child. Mothership Connection uh, creates a whole new world where urban black folks can inhabit. And this world is in the street, but it's also uh, in other places in the galaxy. Uh, George Clinton refers to uh, coming from uh, the top of the chocolate Milky Way. And that meant that these funky black people, these specially designed Afronauts, had come from another world. Uh, to bring uh, the funk to us and save us from this funkless world. Yeah, and this was two years before Star Wars. The line, swing down sweet chariot, was taken from a traditional of black music spiritual that held uh, generations together uh, in hope that one day uh, salvation will come. Song uh, that people sang uh, in church while they were struggling through the slave experience, struggling through the Jim Crow experience. So one day, you know, somebody would come and uh, you know, and, and maybe take us away. And somehow that got woven into uh, this more contemporary notion of a, a liberation theology that had to do with you can make you know your heaven and hell right here on earth. You want a chariot? I have a chariot for you, and uh, we can take you. Sly Stone said, I want to take you higher. And George Clinton said, okay, get on my mothership, and I'll take you higher. This next track... Give Up the Funk, Tear the Roof Off the Sucker uh, was the number one R&B hit in 1976, and it was a number one hit for me. I used to stay up all night listening to KDIA radio, AM 1310, Lucky 13, waiting for Tear the Roof Off the Sucker to come back on one more time uh, so I could jam to it on my AM radio. A lot of songs talk about we want to, you know, make things funky, but this one was uh, the most completely convincing. If you listen carefully, there are many, many layers to the record. The bass line, the guitar rhythm is actually you know, really dissonant. Uh, Jerome Braley's drums, uh, Bootsy Collins' bass line, everything is swinging in different directions. Although what you feel is the raw power of the song. Yeah. 
James Brown built around the raw power and the, the sort of the primal groove in the music. And other people, great artists like Earthwind and Fire and Curtis Mayfield, they arranged around the funk in beautiful ways. This song kind of was the zenith of both of those threads coming together. And this sort of brought to me the end of R&B as we knew it. Nobody was going to do anything more than this. Night of the Thumposaurus peoples has always inspired me and confounded me because it always made me think of who were these people? Night of the Thumposaurus peoples and Mother's Connection overall just hold so many historical threads together. Uh, you, you feel like you're uh, connecting all those struggles of the past, and yet it's ushering in uh, a liberated interplanetary future uh, for human beings and specifically uh, for urban black teenagers. T-Funk sort of brought a whole era to an end and began an opening. With all the in the sand. Mothership Connection is one of the all-time great albums, if, if for no other reason than the money it made for Dr. Dre on The Chronic. Mothership Connection became a palette by which black artists and most contemporary pop music artists understood how to present the future in their arrangements, in the way they made their music. And it wasn't just notes. It wasn't just sounding electronic. It was you had to approach this with a tone, with a theme, with a message. And you would hear that with groups like the Talking Heads, uh, groups like the B-52s, with artists that were, if you ask them, they'll tell you they listened to Parliament in the 70s so they could figure out how to do this futuristic dance music uh, in the 80s. Um, so Parliament and the Mothership Connection uh, gave everybody the formula for baking the sound of the future in their music. Ricky Vincent, talking about Parliament's Mothership Connection. Ricky's latest book is called Party Music, the inside story of the Black Panthers band and how black power transformed soul music. Ricky tells us he's working on a new book about Mothership Connections. You can hear his radio show on KPFA in Berkeley, California. It's called The History of Funk. Every week, we like to close the show with a recommendation from me. It's the outshot. Timmy Thomas didn't move to Miami to make records. He'd done that in Memphis. He'd worked with some great bands and cut a few singles. Now his early 20s were becoming his late 20s, and he wanted to be a businessman. So he moved to Miami to open a nightclub 
And one night in 1972, he was up on stage at the club playing his Hammond organ, and he was thinking about a news report he'd seen the night before, film of some Vietnamese kids, their skin burning from napalm. And he started to improvise on the keys, and then he started to sing. The song he wrote right there on the spot, right on stage, was called Why Can't We Live Together? And by the time it was all said and done, that song sold more than two million copies. But back to Miami, 1972. Timmy Thomas paid $350 to cut a demo of his song, and he brought it to a radio jockey he knew. The jock played the demo, and the call started flooding in. One of them was from a local label guy who signed him on the spot. When Thomas went into the studio to record, he brought his Hammond organ, and the plan was to build the whole thing up, you know, bring in a band with horns and the whole nine. Then they listened to that demo again, Timmy Thomas and his organ, and they knew what it had to sound like. Why Can't We Live Together is just one guy, just Timmy Thomas. The drums are timekeepers, primitive electronic sounds from a box that he's plugged into his organ. They're set to bossa nova. Thomas peddled the bass sounds live with his feet. Tell me why, tell me why, tell me why. Mm, why can't we live together? Tell me why, tell me why. Mm, why can't we live together? Everybody wants to live together. Why can't we live together? of message songs in soul music in 1972, but there were none that sounded like Why Can't We Live Together. It's not angry, not inspirational exactly. It's actually kind of lonely. Just one man on an island as the drum machine plinks along in the background. One guy alone with his thoughts. No matter, no matter what color mm, You want to steal my brother I said no matter, no matter what color steal my brother Everybody wants to live together What can we live together There's something remarkable about this song something like resolve the insistence of that drum machine the force that he puts behind those keyboard stabs the song moves forward inexorable it drags us with it. You start to feel, as you listen, like a better world is possible. Hard, but possible. Timmy Thomas recorded before his hit. He recorded after. He never cut anything else that sold much of anything. But if this one perfect song is what he gave us, this feeling that we're walking together towards something better... Well, there's not much more we can ask for. That's my outshot.
We've come to the end of another episode of Bullseye. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Julia Smith, production fellow at Maximum Fun, is Abadian X. Parello. Our production assistant is Christian Duenas. Senior producer is Colin Anderson. Our segment with Ricky Vincent was recorded by Michael Yoshida at KPFA. All our interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Thanks to the Go team and their label Memphis Industries for our theme music. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, they are all free. Just go to MaximumFun.org or open up whatever you use to listen to podcasts. And if you want to hear about more cool culture stuff, you can check out our sister podcast, Pop Rocket. It's roundtable discussion of everything great in popular culture. It's hosted by comedian Guy Branham. This week, the gang are talking about video games. So if that's an area of culture you need a quick refresher in, or if you'd just like to hear gaming talked about in smart, culturally aware terms, check out Pop Rocket. Available for free wherever you download podcasts. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. 